Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. We're going to read the Bible now. So if you have a Bible with you, you can follow along by opening up to Judges chapter 6. We're going to read from verse 36 to the end of the chapter. So it's Judges chapter 6 from verse 36. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, Look, I will place a a woolen fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Don't be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. Thanks, Ryan. Good morning, everyone. My name's Ross. If we haven't met... We, are, we have been looking over the school holidays at a few of the Judges. In the book of Judges, Old Testament, great uh, stories to engage us with lots of action and, but really important messages at the same time. Uh, so this is our third one. Uh, we're going to wrap this up as far as doing this school holidays. We're going to hit what, what we talked about before in uh, the book of Matthew. Uh, then we're going to save the rest of Judges for another school holiday season. But this story about Gideon, it's a great story, maybe even a bit familiar as we hear the story read to us, uh, but there's actually three chapters of it. So we're going to cover a lot this morning. I'm going to have lots of uh, text up on the screen, but I want you, if, the, if you find the text easy to follow and easy to understand, use it, but uh, feel free to just engage in the, in the story whatever way is suitable for you. If you've even got your Bible there, you might even flick the pages over. As I said, we're covering three chapters, lots to cover, but it is one of those amazing stories. And I think you'll find it's different if you've got a kid's Bible to an adult's Bible. So just preparing you. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we just thank you for the way you speak to us, the way you draw near to us, in a, no matter what season we're in. So we just pray this morning as we come here uh, with many questions, with a hunger to know you, a hunger to draw near to you, that you will uh, speak to us this morning and, and, and comfort our hearts wherever we are. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are times when we get frustrated, frustrated with life, frustrated with things around us, frustrated with people around us. And often in those times, I'm not sure about you, but in my head, my head goes to places that says things like, if I was in control, I would do it this way. You know, why they do it? doesn't matter whether you're at school. If I was the teacher, I would do it this way. At work, if I was the boss, I would do it this way. Even at church, if I was the leader of a church, I would do it this way. 
you know, we all sort of get lead down that path. And for me, it's a slippery slope because then I start going, man, if I was in control, I'd be doing lots of things way different. If I was in control, if I had all the power, I'd make myself different. You know, I would never go over 80 kilos. I could eat whatever I want. I, if I was in control, I would do things differently. But then there's stuff that's more serious. If I was in control, I would stop all the hurt. If I was in control, I'd stop cancer from getting to my friends. If I was in control, I would prevent miscarriages, babies unborn, uh, alive. If I was in control, actually, I might even get rid of death altogether. And what I'm saying is, if I was God, I would do things this way. If I had the power, if I had the authority, I would do things way different to God. In fact, sometimes I think I can do a better job than God. Tell me, if, you, if you're thinking like that, sometimes we go, actually, I don't know what God's doing. Actually, I'm a bit frustrated with God. Actually, I don't know why God's not doing it my way, because my way seems much better. There's this thing with power and thing with being in control that's very, kind of makes us insecure when we're not in control. It even uh, can make us feel oppressed and beaten and abused by others if others have control over us. This whole thing about power is really dangerous. We want power, we want control, but, but power has power and can we handle that power? This story about Gideon is an amazing lesson about how God works with people and how power is a good thing but a dangerous thing. Let's, let's dig a bit deeper and see how God reveals himself being a powerful God but yet, but yet works in our weakness and how that is revealed. As we get into the story, uh, if you've been with us through the, uh, the, the journey in Judges, we realise there's this bit of a cycle where the Israelites, they do evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forget about God. And when they forget about God, God says, well, that's all right, if you're forgetting about me, I'm going to withdraw. In fact, I'm going to allow other nations to come in over the top of you and to rule you. So you're not following me, you're not trusting me. So in this case, from chapter 6, verse 1, we see the Midianites have come in and they've got the power. Verse 2, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters uh, for themselves in the mountain clefts, caves and strongholds. We get in those opening verses that the Israelites, they're hiding. They're not in their villages and towns anymore. They're hiding up in the caves. They're building up temporary dwellings. Uh, there's stories about them putting out their crops to, to grow and to feed themselves, feed their families. Midianites just come in like a swarm of locusts, hundreds and thousands of people with all their animals. Uh, they come in, just graze on their crops and move on like locusts do and leave the Israelites with no food in poverty and living in fear up in the mountains. It's very clear in this part of the story who's got the power it's not Israel it's the Midianites and like most people with power they're oppressing those below them Israel are the victims they're being pushed down seven years this goes on so what does Israel do they cry out to God we need help they cry out to God we pick it up at verse 7 they cry to the Lord because of Midian, please help us. They want a deliverer, they want a saviour, they want a warrior that's going to defeat their enemy. But what does God send them? Verse 8, he sends them a prophet. 
prophets don't necessarily go out like a warrior. They just do a lot of talking. This is what the message God has for you. But what is this prophet telling them? Reminding them who's got the power. He says, this is a message from God. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Remember, you were in poverty before. You were the oppressed. You were the weak before, but I brought you out. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. It's very clear that God is the one with all the power. God is the one who's the deliverer. God is the one who they can trust. It was only last week, if you were here, we heard the story of Deborah come across her enemies uh, and they had all these uh, chariots. And just like the Egyptians, Deborah sings this song at the end of the victory, just last chapter, about how God had destroyed all the chariots as they go through the water. Just like what happened back at the Egyptians. What happened to them? It's even recent history for the guys, for the Israelites living in that time. But God still has to remind them, I'm the one with all the power. It's very clear. Now we get into verse 12 and here we meet Gideon. Gideon is in a situation where he's hiding from, the, uh, from his enemies, the Midianites as well. He's hiding in a disused vat, uh, a wine press, and he's sifting his wheat. He's hiding because if Midianites know he's got food, they're going to come and plunder him. So he's hiding in fear. And then an angel comes to talk to him. Now this angel is not, I know when we often think of angel, we think of like this glowing being with wings flattering and we're sort of, wow, that's awesome. It's not that sort of angel. Angel can also be uh, translated as like a messenger from God. This is God's messenger uh, as a man, more in human form. And he says to Gideon, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. One sentence, two big things. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon, Israelite, hiding in his vat. Now Gideon replies, he's got two issues with this statement. The first one, pardon me, my Lord. You'll find out Gideon's very polite. He's a nice guy, he's a polite guy. Pardon me, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, this is my first problem. When you say the Lord is with you, I don't see it. He says, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us to the hand of Midian. So what is God doing? He's not in control. He's walked away from us. It's like him saying, if I was in control... If I was in control, I'd have food to eat. I wouldn't be hiding in this fat. I wouldn't be fearful of my life. If I was in control, I would wipe out the Midianites at all. In fact, I think I could do a better job than God. This is what he's saying. If I was in control, I would do a better job than what God's doing right now because it doesn't look real good. That's the problem he has with the first statement. So what does the angel say back? The Lord turned to him and said, well... Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of, the, out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? It's like God's saying, well, if you think you can do a better job, go and do a better job. In your strength, go. You have my blessing. Go and do it. That's the first problem that, that Gideon has. The second problem we see in verse 15, the whole bit about being called mighty warrior, because then, 
as the tables are turned. Verse 15, he says, well, pardon me again, my Lord, uh, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. No, I, I'm the lowest tribe, the lowest family, and I'm the weakest in my family. I'm a nobody. Don't call me mighty warrior because I can't, you know, I'm sifting wheat and hiding in a vat. It's not me. But this time, God has a different answer. Not go in your own strength. He says, the Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. This is not just a command, well, go and do your best. This is a promise. I will be with you. Go and do it. Go and wipe out your enemy. But this time, if you work out who's, who's the most powerful in the story, it's very clearly God is, has got all the power. And God's going to be with Gideon. He's a powerful God, so you can trust him. So things are going to change. And it's going to change a lot for Gideon. But Gideon is the sort of guy that he does need reassuring, like all of us. If God called us to do something very scary, very intimidating, very, it pushes us out of our comfort zone, we want reassurance. So Gideon comes back to God and says in verse 17, if now I have favour in your eyes, give me a sign that, that it is really you talking to me. It's very interesting what he does here because a lot of people do lots of interesting things with the way Gideon questions God. And, and it seems to be very consistent in here. Gideon never argues with God. You're wrong. He never says no to God. I'm not going to do it. He actually believes God and trusts God, but he needs a lot of reassurance. It's almost like, if you know the story when Jesus well, was talking to many people and a soldier come in, a foreigner, a soldier come in with his sick child and he asked Jesus, can you hear my heal my child? And Jesus said, your child will be healed if you believe. Now you look at that part of the story and you go, look at all the Jews who should be believing. No, they want to kill Jesus. You look at all the disciples, they should be believing. They're still trying to work out who this Jesus guy is, how big he really is. The person in that story who really does believe is the soldier. And you go, why would Jesus say that? The soldier has brought the child to him because he believes. But then what does the soldier ask for? The, old, the soldier asks, Jesus, help me to believe. Give me the belief. I believe, but it's like, give me the assurance. Help my belief. And this is sort of question that Gideon's got. It's not that he doesn't believe, it's help me to believe. Give me a sign, he says. That is really you talking to me. Now Gideon, we see when he comes up with the proposal, he's, he's not the quickest thinker on his feet. In fact, he comes up with some crazy ideas. This is kind of up there. He says to them, please don't go away until I come back with my offering and set it before you. The angel of the Lord says, I'll wait till you return. Why does he say I'll wait? Because to prepare a, a sacrifice is you've got to go out, kill an animal, cut up the meat, have the meat ready, sing some praise songs maybe. You've got to make up a broth. I'm sure it's a good song. <laughs> Kill the animal, cut up the meat, make a broth, and make bread, unleavened bread. And he makes it from scratch, mixing up the flour and, and, and cooking it all up. This is going to take a while. This could take out, this could easily take half a day. So when Gideon says to the angel, please wait, 
It's like saying, God, you're the most important, you're the biggest, most powerful thing in the whole universe. But yet, just, just wait a minute, will you? I'm going to come back in, yeah, dinner time. It comes back. God waits. God's got patience. God's not worried about him questioning him. Gideon puts out onto a rock. There's no wood, because what you do with sacrifices, you burn it, your sacrifices, so you burn it to God. But he puts it on a rock with no wood. His meat, his bread, pours over it, the broth. Everything's wet, there's no wood. And what does the angel do? Strike it, and it all erupts in flames and burns as a burning sacrifice. Gideon steps back and goes, wow, I have really come face to face with an angel of the Lord. Through this story, there is no doubt God is real and God has power and God is in control. Finish that that, that bit of the story with Gideon going, man, that's amazing. I can trust God. He's shown me, he's given me a sign. But as we go on, it becomes clearer that God's power is heightened when it works with God in our weakness, within our smallness. So we go on uh, to, to that night where the, an angel again comes to the Lord, or, or uh, God speaks to Gideon that night in verse 25. And God commands him to go into the city. There's three battles that are going to happen in this story. This is like the first battle, and it's against Baal. Baal is the other gods that they follow, other religion. Let's wipe out the other religion so we can only trust God. Let's see who's the strongest here. So God calls him, go out at night to your village um, altar and uh, the Asherah pole, an Asherah pole is just a pole with a carving in it with Asherah is the female god of fertility. Um, Gideon's name, by the way, means woodcutter. He's a guy that cuts down trees. So God's saying, we're going to put this to use. Cut down the Asherah pole, tear down the altar, use the wood, to, to or use the rocks to rebuild an altar to me, use the wood for, to make another sacrifice and go get one of your dad's bulls to sacrifice on it. By the way, your dad built the altar in the village sacrifice to Baal. Now, do you think that scared Gideon? It did. Did it stop him? No. So that night, he gets some of his buddies, 10 of his servants, to come out at night so he could, wouldn't be seen, and wouldn't be caught, but he does it. In fear, because we're told in verse 27, because he was afraid of his family and townspeople, he did it at night rather than the daytime. It's interesting, if, you're, if you've got confronting things to say, who are you most fearful of? It's those closest to you, your family, your friends, your neighbours. It's like, man, I'm going to upset a lot of people doing this, but God's called me to do it. He did it. Tore it down, did exactly what God said, got rid of Baal, got rid of the Asherah pole, made a sacrifice to God. Townspeople come out in the morning, say, what the heck's going on? Somebody's got to pay for this. You can't get rid of our our gods, Baal. Somebody says, hey, we saw Gideon last night doing that. And who comes to Gideon's rescue? It's his dad. His dad comes out, the one who built it all, the one who owned it all. And he says, no, no, no. Hey, if Baal's a real God, he'll have the power to deal with with it himself. If he's real, he can fight for himself. We don't have to fight for Baal. So the townspeople turn around and says, well, let's call Gideon. They changed his name, gave him a nickname. Let Baal contend. Baals. So he's going to be known throughout the rest of the story. So in the text, you get an interchange of names. Baal's, Baal's got it in for you. 
but it's in this tension. That's the first battle, battle getting rid of Baal. But it's in the tension of, is Baal really going to have a piece of Gideon? Then we see in the following verses, no, no, it's not Baal. It's actually the Spirit of the Lord. So if we go down, this is coming into the second big battle, verse 33. We're told in verse 34 that the Spirit of the Lord comes on Gideon. Baal's nowhere to be seen. The Spirit of the Lord comes on Gideon. He blows his trumpet. And what that means in that time is when you want to gather the army, you blow your trumpet. He doesn't go blowing his trumpet all throughout Israel, gathering men. He just does it in his area, blowing his trumpet. 22,000 men gather. We're also told that the, the other nations, the armies, are all gathering in the valley just to really lay the boot into Israel. So they're gathering just to, to trample Israel and to oppress them even further. Gideon's up there blowing his trumpet. 22,000 men turn up. He's going, man, this is all of a sudden getting serious. This second battle, the big battle, oh, like, I'm in way over my head. So what does he do at this point? He asks God again. Like, he doesn't argue with God. doesn't say, no, I'm not going to do it. This is a ridiculous plan. But he's like, help me to believe. And this is where we had our Bible reading where he says, look, God, hope you're not worried, but can I just ask you a question? If this is what you want me to do, actually he says uh, in verse 36, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, it's like he understands what God has said. He understands the power of God that he can do it. But if you're going to do it, can you give me a sign? Thinking on his feet, what sort of sign's a good sign? I've got this bit of wool here, I'm going to stick it outside, the dew lands on it. If you know anything about wool, you know that the wool and water don't mix. Wool can't absorb water. So he's going, this is going to be a good test. If the dew goes onto the wool and the wool absorbs it, I'll know that's from God because that doesn't normally happen. At the end of that night, gets up in the morning, the wool's so wet, he wrings out the water. He's a bit shaky. Maybe he wasn't the sharpest in his science lesson at school. So he goes, maybe I got that the other way around. Maybe wool absorbs water. So he asks God again, don't be, don't be angry with me, but can we do that again, but get the wool out? And maybe if the wool stays dry, but everything else is wet, then I'll trust you. God does it again. God's patient God with him. God reassures Gideon for his questions. Help me to believe. God, his answer. But then God said, actually, I've got something for you. I think your army's too big. I think if your army is so big, he's got 22,000 people, they can have victory and they'll think they'll do it under their own strength. I want you to know, without a doubt, that I am God. I have all the power and I am the ruler. So I want you to thin down your army. Tells them, uh, if you're scared or worried, go home. Comes down to 10,000. No, no, it's too big still. Go to the water and drink. And those who lap like dogs, hold up the water and lap like dogs with their tongues, then I'll have them. Reduces it to 300. 300 is about right. You're a valley full of soldiers and we're going to take them on with 300 people. Then you'll know. Then you'll know that I'm God. So with 300 men, God sends them out. But God also knows, and this is the tension here, if Gideon's got doubts, God is sympathetic to those doubts. He says, I want to, Keep reassuring you in this. So it says, if you're worried, uh, in, so we're into chapter 7 now, verse 9. He says, if you're, if you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp, so at night time, go down to the enemy's camp, take your servant and listen to what those guys are saying. Afterwards, you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. 
So him and his servants sneak down at night time to an outpost of the camp to listen to what the soldiers are talking about. They don't, soldiers don't know he's there. And one soldier says to his mate, he says, you know I had a dream last night that we were all gathered here. All our soldiers were gathered in the valley here and from the mountain rolled down this giant loaf of bread and it squashed us all, killing everyone. Nobody survived. And his mate says, you know what that is? That's Gideon and his army. He's going to come in, he's going to wipe us out. We're all going to die at the hands of Gideon. Gideon's overhearing this like, man, if this is a vision God's giving them, I can have assurance that God's on my side. So he worships God at that point, praises God, and he goes back up to the camp. And he says to everybody, get up. The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Get this. This is a partnership. It's God's strength, the weakness of Gideon, the weakness of 300 men. But when they come together, God's glory is known, his power is known through their weakness. So he says, come on, men, comes up with the plan. We'll come, go down there with our 300 men, with our torches, our fires, with our trumpets, because trumpets gather armies, remember, but we'll all have trumpets, or 300 men are going to have trumpets. We're going to blow our trumpets, sound like the army's going to come, and what happens is they get down there, they blow their trumpets, the Midianites, they panic, and we're told in verse 22, when the 300 men sounded their trumpets, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords, so they start killing each other in their darkness. Gideon's army hasn't even wielded a sword yet, and a lot of the army are dead. But then they spread. Some of the army flee, flee in one direction and another in another direction. Now, here's where the story changes. Because so far we've seen the power of God. But then the power of God teamed up with man's wit, Weakness but willingness and faithfulness is a good, good things are happening. But from here on, when we talk about God, God is a third party in the story. He's distant. He's been shoved into the background because now Gideon and his army have some power and a bit of a taste of power is very dangerous. Strange things happen from now on because they get a, the, the power of power has influenced them. When the army, when one part of the, the Midianites run in a particular direction, he calls on other parts of Israel, the Ephraimites. Hey, can you guys go down and head them off? Head them off down there. That'll give us victory so I can chase my the others with my 300 men. So the Midianites go down, they kill their kings, the, the, the Midianite kings, and they have victory over it. They come back to Gideon, and instead of celebrating, hey, we had a victory, praise God, what do they say? The men, of Ephraim, the men of Ephraim were called out, they pursued the Midianites, they brought the heads of, of their, their leaders back to Gideon. We hit chapter 8. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? They challenged him vigorously. Ephraimites have a reputation of, we're the fighters, we're the good guys, we're the strong guys. So it's a power struggle. They've all had a taste of power. They've all had a taste of victory. Now the Midianites are saying, where's our recognition? Where's our glory? Where's our medal? Because we had the victory. Give us some recognition here. In fact, we're insulted that you didn't ask us in the first place. You were trying to get the glory for yourself, weren't you? How's Gideon going to defuse this? 
Is he going to point to God? No, no, no. God told me to do this. All in God's strength we had victories. God did it all. God's amazing. He doesn't say that at all. A bit of power, a bit of manipulation, a bit of politics comes in. Gideon answers them, verse 2. Oh, you know, what have I accomplished compared to you? He starts stroking their ego. I'm a nobody. You guys are great. He even talks about you guys even have the best grapes around. Your grape harvest is amazing. Verse 3, God gave Oreb and Zeb, the, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? They kind of go, good on Gideon, he's giving recognition to God, but no, he's not. He's saying, giving God gave victory, but it's into your hands. You are the great ones. You deserve the medals. Just trying to stroke their ego by giving them more power, more prominence. Just shrugging them off, playing the game, stroking their ego with words. But not just to diffuse problems giving them power rather than God, but power gets to Gideon as well because Gideon takes his 300 men in pursuit of the other army. He goes down, they... Uh, they're getting tired by this stage, a bit worn out. They go into one village and say, hey, can we have some, some drinks and some food because we're in pursuit of the enemy, the Midianites. Remember, they're the bad guys. And the town, uh, Succoth, go, the men of Succoth go, hang on a minute. Um, they're still alive and the neighbouring kings are still running away. We're not going to give you anything until you bring the heads of them. You know, we're not going to do that. Gideon, frustrated, thinking on his feet again, says, mate, when I get those kings, I don't come back to you and give you guys a public flogging. I only get the thorn bush out and give your leaders a public flogging. Okay. Goes to the next town. Goes down um, to the town of Paniel. Same thing happens. Give us some food and drink. No, no. The other kings are still running. Go and knock them off. I'm going to come back, but this time he says, I'm going to tear down your tower. Your tower is the place in a small village. The tower is often the only stone building there is. It's the lookout. It's the safety, but it's also the retreat. Other buildings are made of timber or wood and sticks or mud even, but the tower is the safe place. I'm going to come and tear down your tower because you didn't help us. And what happens? He goes down, chases the kings, deliberately doesn't kill them, brings them back in person, firstly to, to Succoth, and he, they say to him, look, here's my kings. Where are all your leaders? Pulls out 70 leaders, gives them a public flogging with a thorn bush. And if you read the whole story, I encourage you to go home and read this whole story. It says Gideon wanted to teach them a lesson. Public flogging with a thorn bush. But then he goes to the next town, Peniel, pulls down their tower and kills a number of their men. Is this the leader? The Midianites were the ones oppressing the Israelites. Now Gideon's going, giving their leaders public floggings and tearing down their buildings and killing them. The power has got to Gideon. He gets the two kings. This is around a crowd of people in verse 20. And he says to his eldest son, okay, boy, kill, a ki kill these kings. It's like, man, I don't want no piece of this. I don't know what's going on in here. So Gideon, in front of everybody, nice, the king's dead. But why did he want his son to do it? We'll come back to that question in a moment. By this time, all Israel is saying to, to Gideon, hey, rule over us. You, your son and your grandson, like a kingship, like a monarchy. Because you have saved us from the hands of Midian. Now there's this one interesting verse where 
Gideon's reply says, I will not rule over you, nor my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Great answer, isn't it? God's the one with all the power. He's the one that should be ruling over you. But sometimes if you've been around a while, particularly in churches or or religious circles, people can say things that sound very impressive, but when you look at their actions, they look very different. Because this is what Gideon's saying, sounds good, but when you look at how power has influenced him, what's he doing? The idea of getting his son to kill the neighbouring kings, you you get credit if you can kill a neighbouring king, an enemy king. It promotes you. The idea, Gideon's had his victory. He's got the promotion. Now, come on, son. Where he says, I don't want my sons to, to rule over you. No, come on, son. You get the badge. You get the, the war medal for killing these neighbouring kids. I want you to be second in line, just like every other king. We're also shown how this, this, the power of power has corrupted him, that he's become like many other kings as well. Because directly, the next verse, after he says that I don't want to be a king, God should be king, Gideon says to them, I do have one request, and that's you give me basically some of your share of the plunder. Give me some gold, which they do willingly. He makes a gold ephod. An ephod is a gold vest that um, you have, when God dwells with his people at this time, he has a tabernacle, like a tent, with a priest, a high priest. The high priest has a vest called an ephod, and it's, it's glamorous, it's impressive because this is God's man. It's the way God speaks to his people. And he serves between the tabernacle, the tent, uh, with the Ark of the Covenant and the people. This is a centre of religion where, where the priest is, the ephod is. But now Gideon's making his own ephod. So I want, uh, the, the high priest lives in another town. I want him in my town. We're told that he takes him to his town. In fact, this whole invention of new religion i want the the high priest this new high priest to be close to me and we're told here by making the ephod israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there and it became a snare to gideon and his family it's setting up a second place of religion this is not god this is competing with god in fact you might say i know better than god i can rule better than god actually i might even want to control god by having the priesthood near me with my gold ephod uh, ephod but not only that he's acting like more like a corrupt king we get down to verse 30 he had many wives he had 70 sons how many wives do you need to have 70 sons he even had concubines which are more girlfriends on the side the next chapter we'll hear this one that's been talked about his concubine who lived in shechem also bore him a son whom he named abimelech this concubine was his servant girl got her pregnant Oh, she's my girlfriend. What does he call the son? Abimelech, which means my father is king. He's even naming his sons. My father is king. Read the next chapter. We're not going to do that today. Read the next chapter and we'll see how he plays out as a leader. He kills all his brothers, all but one. It's getting messier and messier. The power of power is corrupting them. This whole scenario ends up, verse 33, no sooner had Gideon died than Israel again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up baal Baal uh, as their God and did not remember the Lord their God who rescued them from the hands of their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to, to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in spite of all the good things he'd done. 
I think that's just putting a knife in to going, we think if we've got the power, if we've got control, if we're respected by everybody, my, my name is going to live on forever. What it's saying is, no, it didn't. Even if he thought that, his power wasn't, wasn't going to last the next generation. It's just two quick things I want to bring out of this story because the story's a mess. Did you, did you guys familiar, know this from your kid's Bible? Uh, it's a bit bigger than the kid's Bible version. But I think a couple of quick lessons is there is a, a teaching spot for those who pursue power, that we should be careful of the power of power and it will destroy you and those around you. And what we see here is that you don't have to be a powerful person to abuse and oppress others, to be lifted up. You could be in human terms, a nobody, but crave power and abuse others and push others down. And we see that the way we try and dominate other people, the way we control other people. And you might go, oh, I've seen that in the workplace. But it also happens in our homes, doesn't it? That I need respect, I deserve authority, I deserve to be one in control, and we push and oppress others around us with our words, with our attitude, even with violence sometimes. Churches can be guilty of this too. Church leaders, the power of power corrupts and the church leaders use their authority to damage others, to push others down. But there's also a message of encouragement to the oppressed and disheartened, those ones who have been pushed down. I'm sure many of us have been in situations and some of us in really terrible situations where we've been the victims of other people's fight for power. That God reaches out to the weak and the broken and the oppressed. And we see that the way God reaches out to Gideon and Israel, but through Gideon's leadership, that doesn't last. But we see it ultimately through Jesus, that he lets go of his throne in heaven. Jesus, the king of the universe, not only rules with power and authority, but his rulership, is submissive. He gives up his position on the throne, becomes a servant, servant of all, even to the point of giving up his life, even to the point of death. Talk about those people who are the worst oppressed people. They're dead. They've given their life. Jesus even goes to that level. To go, I know what you're talking about. I know what you've experienced. I've given up everything at the hands of people I love, the, the, the Jewish leaders, and they crucified me. He come for the oppressed, for the weak. But also know that trusting God's authority gives comfort because it's easy to experience if we've had somebody abusing us, dominating us, controlling us, and we see somebody like, hey, you need to submit to God, you need to give your life to God, trust God. Go, yeah, right, I've seen this work out in the church before where it's another way of setting up structures of oppression, abuse and control seen it all before that's not the way it should be in fact the apostle paul talks about uh in in his own sin and weakness he takes comfort in god's message when god says for my power is made perfect in weakness he's not saying god looks bigger if he keeps us down here broken and weak no 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 god's power is made made known and seen as perfect because he lifts us up from our weakness. We can't get out of our struggles. 
All those things that I pointed out at the start, I wish I could make things better, but I can't. I struggle with death, sin, sickness, weight control. I struggle with all those things. But yet God says, I have the power to lift you up. I have the power to restore you. I have the power to make you a child of God. I have the power to give you identity. Trust in him, not in ourselves. That's the God I want to submit to. And we can... If we just remind ourselves, what was the big lesson? How did this story start with a reminder that God is big? I just want to read these verses out to you again. Where God says, chapter 6, verse 7. God says, I brought you up out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of your oppressors. I drove them out and gave their land. Now, I want to see that now. I want to see my enemies and oppressors gone now. But like the faith of Gideon, I've got to trust God that he's got the plan, that he's going to destroy death, he's going to destroy evil, he's going to destroy the oppressors, he will do it. But I think it's in those moments where we doubt, we go, help me to believe, God. I don't doubt it, but just help me to believe, and that should be our prayer. Be encouraged by that. Let me pray. Dear Father God, we just thank you that you are big, strong and powerful and that we can trust you. But Lord, often we, we battle with our struggles whether it's other people around us, whether it's our ageing, our sickness, even confronted by death. Lord, we are weak and we do need you. We do need to trust in your strength. Lord, it's not that we don't believe, but help us to believe. Help us to have great confidence that you've got a place for us in eternity, that you will hold us close. There are no more tears, but joy. There will be no more distance from you, but intimacy with you. Help us to believe, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.